Hey sinners, Serotonin here, just dropping in with a quick intro. This podcast was originally written and recorded for Spotify, where I'm able to embed some ripper tunes between segments to support the topics, new releases, or particular artists which are discussed. This version has been adjusted to allow sharing on alternate platforms and unfortunately won't include those tracks, which might make my silly segues and transitions just a little bit strange. If you would like to be able to check out the songs that were intended to be part of this episode, jump through the Sin and Steel link tree to the songs from the Sin and Steel podcast playlist, or see the track listing in the description of the episode. Hello and welcome to Sin and Steel, the heavy metal podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Tonin, and in today's episode, we're taking a look at censorship, bans, warnings, and cancel culture before we jump into new releases and recent heavy metal news. We have a killer track listing for this episode with songs from Judas Priest, Megadeth, Danzig, Primal Fear, Death Clock, Ex Mortis, and more. Getting straight into it, heavy metal is rife with content that can be questionable, sit outside of what might be considered kind of morally acceptable and often present in a way that may be perceived by outsiders as overly sexual, aggressive, violent, or just plain gross. Let's be real, that's something that most fans actually love about the genre. An outsider might hear angry music and view lyrics about death, decay, or violent acts as disgusting and potentially promoting that type of behaviour. But from the inside, we know it's just expression. It's a way of releasing negative emotions in a controlled way. And sometimes it's just damn entertaining and cathartic to think or talk about things that are outside of our reality, exploring the sick, the strange, or the taboo in a safe way. The lack of understanding can easily lead to people wanting to, for lack of a better word, protect others from this potentially harmful music. And that's just one example of when we start to see censorship come into play. Censorship by definition is the suppression or prohibition of any parts of books, films, news, music, etc. that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. What this looks like can vary in different circumstances, from country to country, between record labels, broadcasting companies, and even between individuals. But it works by terminating unwanted messages with the hopes of keeping the targeted listeners in check in some way or another, with the main three conditions being, one, the censored body or subject is not authorized. Two, the censorship takes place to avert the object of what is restricted. And three, it's put in place to deny existence of the censored issues. This could be done through the complete removal or banning of media, making the sale or possession of particular items illegal or illegal in certain settings, banning artists from performing in certain countries or venues, or it could be more mild censorship targeting specific lyrics, sounds or artwork and requiring these be removed or changed, whether that's for mainstream purposes like radio edits or for good. So the reasons or goals of censorship are of course dependent on the views of those that are imposing it and they can be anything from preventing minors from accessing material that might not be suitable or that parents might not be ready to explain. Preventing people from partaking in something that the people imposing the censorship feel is immoral or dangerous. Or it can be, and often is, purely about power. 
having control and hiding or suppressing issues or preventing people from challenging social norms. I mean, once upon a time, the Beach Boys song, God Only Knows, that was banned from loads of radio stations because how dare they use the Lord's name in a pop song. And we all know how much controversy Elvis Presley saw, not only with his lyrics, but, you know, all that gyration, driving the girls wild, you can't have that. We could be here all day if I dug right into this, but you get the drift. Whatever the reason behind different types of censorship, it's not unique to music, and it isn't unique to heavy metal. But we've seen more than our fair share of it, and we're not going to take it anymore. That was Twisted Sister with We're Not Gonna Take It. It's really interesting how much things change over the years because although that song made the Filthy 15 list for promotion of violence and so it was seen as, you know, disgusting, it's been a favourite amongst politicians with many trying to use it in their campaign since. Twisted Sister have actually had to order Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump to cease and desist the use of this song but have said that if any pro-choice candidates want to use it, they have permission to use this track. And in 2019, Clive Palmer of the United Nations Party in Australia had attempted to get licensing to use the song, but due to costs, he abandoned this before any decision could be made and decided to rewrite the lyrics and use his own version instead. He was sued $1.5 million in damages, ordered to pay costs and to remove all copies of his song and the accompanying video from the internet. Anyway, so before we jump into the Filthy 15 and the PMRC, I did want to note that prior to this, we'd already seen things like Led Zeppelin being unable to play shows in Singapore, or more accurately, weren't even allowed to leave their private jet before being sent off again. This one wasn't because of heavy metal or their lyrics, but because of their long hair. Long hair at that stage equated to drugs, and the government didn't want any drug culture to infect its masses, so they had to censor or remove all traces of this behaviour from the eyes of their citizens. And around the time of the PMRC formation, Ozzy Osbourne had been a scapegoat for the suicide of a 19-year-old, with parents blaming the song Suicide Solution, which is of course about alcohol addiction, not literal suicide. But this of course meant bad press, people wanting Ozzy to be held accountable, wanting his music banned, and this was all under the guise of protection. So then enters Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife at the time, and a rock drummer. Yes, a rock drummer. Not the first thing you might think of when you hear the name Tipper Gore, but she drummed in an all-girl rock band called the Wildcats in school. And over the years, she's played shows with Willie Nelson, Herbie Hancock, Tom Petty, John Bon Jovi, and the Grateful Dead. Tipper Gore and the Washington Wives got together and formed the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Centre. Tipper claims she heard her 11-year-old daughter listening to the Prince song, Darling Nikki, which includes a line about a sex fiend masturbating to a magazine. She says that both her and her daughter became embarrassed at the vulgar lyrics, and that's when she got mad. I feel like if the daughter got embarrassed, she already knew what that word meant. And is that not your opportunity as a parent to discuss these things with your kid in a safe environment? I don't know. So her outrage brought her to discuss this with the other wives who set up the PMRC and created the list, the Filthy 15, comprising of songs they found most objectionable, giving it a rating system of X for profane or sexually explicit, O for occult, D-A for drugs or alcohol, and V for violent. Their aim was to have warning labels attached to records based on these ratings. So the Filthy 15 was this. 
One, Prince, Darling Mickey, for its reference to masturbation. Two, Sheena Easton, Sugar Walls, for its sexual innuendos. Three, Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, for advocating oral sex at gunpoint. Four, Vanity, Strap On Robbie Baby, for its sexually provocative lyrics. Five, Motley Crue, Bastard, for its violent lyrics about stabbing someone to death. Six, ACDC, Let Me Put My Love Into You, for profane lyrics. Seven, Twisted Sister, We're Not Gonna Take It, for promoting violence. Eight, Madonna, Dress You Up, for its sexually provocative lyrics. Wasp, Animal, Fuck Like a Beast, for its profane and sexually provocative lyrics. And Tipper claimed that Blackie wrote this after watching Animals Mating. Ten, Def Leppard, High and Dry, for its reference to drinking and sex. 11. Merciful Fate, Into the Coven, for its ties to the occult, of course. 12. Black Sabbath, Trashed, for references to drinking and driving. 13. Mary Jane Girls, In My House, for its sexual innuendos. 14. Venom, Possessed, for its satanic themes and sexual references. And 15. Cindy Lauper, She Bop, for its references to masturbation. 9 of the 15 were heavy metal bands. They, the PMRC, did succeed in introducing the parental advisory sticker, but only after the very memorable 1985 Senate hearing into the alleged social problem of porn rock, in which Frank Zappa, John Denver and Dee Snyder all took the stand. Frank Zappa said that if it looks like censorship and it smells like censorship, it is censorship no matter whose wife is talking about it, while John Denver compared it to Nazi book burnings. Dee spoke incredibly well, and the videos of his portion are something I could watch over and over again, and I would recommend anyone watch if they haven't already. My favourite part is when Tipper Gore has claimed that there are references to bondage and sadomasochism, and he says, you're gonna find what you want to find in lyrics. They're up for interpretation, right? So if Tipper Gore has BDSM on the brain, she's going to find BDSM. The impact of the stickers was mixed. In some cases, there were reports of increased sales because kids wanted the albums that had these warnings on them, but other bands have said that this just wasn't true, it was way over-exaggerated, or had just been said to kind of save face. At least for a while, a lot of major retailers were refusing to stock any albums that came with these labels. The bad press was just too much, so if your album had the warnings, they weren't even going to reach the stores. This led to record labels pressuring artists to change lyrics, remove tracks, or otherwise alter their music to prevent getting the warnings from the get-go. In some cases, record labels were even refusing to make records like this, resulting in artists losing deals or having to look for new labels that weren't going to be so restrictive. It's tricky because in one way I can understand parents wanting to be able to make informed decisions or having a heads up that they might have some questions from their kids when they listen to this. But I doubt that most people ever used the warning labels like this. Instead, they would likely just assume that it's inappropriate automatically, that it's something awful and they'd read into it a lot more because of those warnings and decide that they need to prevent their kids from listening to it at all costs. The flow-on effect is that it puts pressure on artists to conform to someone else's standards, it removes their creative freedom, and it treats kids and people in general like they're dumb. It puts targets on the artist's backs, who then have parents showing up and protesting shows or events and taking other action trying to shut them down. That was Judas Priest with Parental Guidance, a track made in direct response to the PMRC and the placement of Priest on the Filthy 15. 
While Rob Halford has always maintained that the idea of instilling good values in your children is important, he felt that the noise that came from the PMRC, all the yelling and the screaming, the claims that the bands want to kill your kids, and activities from extreme telethon Christians was diluting the message with crazy. Little did he know at the time that only a few years later, the band would be accused of causing a double suicide for the song Better By You, Better Than Me, and be taken to court, pushing that idea that bands want to kill your kids even further with suggestion of subliminal messaging. Judas Priest weren't the only band to provide responses to the PMRC through music. In 1985, Frank Zappa released the song Porn Wars, which even used audio clips from the congressional hearing. In 1987, Alice Cooper released the track Freedom and shared that he thought the idea of parental warning labels and what the PMRC were doing was based on an assumption that kids are all stupid. He said that the same kids had grown up with movies like Friday 13th. They understand satire, they understand dark humour and can make choices in what media they want to consume. Yes to all of this. In 1987, NoFX released the seven-track EP, The PMRC Can Suck On This EP, which had a delightfully vulgar cover with a couple engaging in BDSM with televangelist Jim Becker and Tammy Faye's faces placed on the top. Uh, The EP was released with only 500 copies that were hand-numbered and sold out the back of the band's van. In 1988, Megadeth released the song Hook in Mouth, denouncing censorship and the PMRC, with Dave Mustaine saying that the lyrics were directed at those who were fucking around with our constitutional rights and trying to take away our freedom of speech. 1988 also saw the release of Danzig's track Mother, which was written about the PMRC and the idea that someone is going to tell you what you can and can't create or record and in turn release for others to hear. I'll be honest, this one I didn't know about until researching for this episode. I kind of figured it was about this general idea of evil things being part of existence. You can try and hide them, but they'll always be there. And I suppose there are similarities in that sentiment, but I had no idea it was a censorship or PMRC targeted song. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say. Mother, can you keep them in the dark for life? Can you hide them from the waiting world? It makes so much more sense now. In 1990, Warrant released the track Ode to Tipper Gore, which was just a 60 second mashup of swearing from their live shows. And in 1992, Ramones put out the song Censor Shit, referring to Tipper Gore in the chorus where they ask, Tipper, come on, ain't you been getting it on? Ask Ozzy Zapper or me, we'll show you what it's like to be free. There was also a protest in 93 with Rage Against the Machine stepping out on stage at Lollapalooza Festival in Philadelphia, completely nude, with duct tape covering their mouths and the letters PMRC spelt out on their chests. They propped their instruments up against the amps and created a bit of a feedback loop that just played while they stood there. Initially, the crowd were cheering, they got the message, they approved, but when they realised they had no intention of playing, they kind of turned on them and started throwing bottles and just getting pissed off. Uh, The police ended up having to get on stage and haul the band off. I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of songs and protests against the PMRC and censorship, but I think those are some bloody good ones. Let's take a quick break to give another one of them a listen. That was Megadeth with Hook in Mouth. Australia has some interesting history with music censorship. I'll start with this. In 1990, Nick Franklin, the acting news director of the radio station Triple J, was suspended after having played a portion of NWA's song, Fuck the Police. 
The song had been played numerous times over the months leading up to this, but on this particular occasion, Nick had been asked to give it a break by the Radiohead Malcolm Long. People were really pissed off about his suspension, so in protest, Triple J staff played the NWA song Express Yourself, which had been written as a song against censorship and known as being one of the only mainstream or media-friendly songs on the album, on a loop until Nick was reinstated. So this was played 82 times before they folded. You might know about the Cannibal Corpse band in the 90s, especially if you've been following along with my trivia episodes, but before they were banned outright, there were already bans on a bunch of death metal by the Australian Office of Film and Literature Classification. In 1993, 20 different stores around Sydney were raided by police after they were found to have imported a bunch of records and cassettes of death metal music that had been banned for violent and sexually explicit lyrics. This included themes of cruelty, necrophilia and self-mutilation. Talk about a haul. Although what they found was really not a lot given the limited quantities that were being snuck in, they confiscated copies of Like an Ever-Flowing Stream by Dismember, Tomb of the Mutilated by Cannibal Corpse, Acts of the Unspeakable by Autopsy, and Being Caught Buttering by Pungent Stench. That is a fucking great collection that was soon to be taken to customs. In 1995, an Australian band was the new scapegoat to Despicable Acts, with Silverchair being blamed for a triple murder in the US. A 16-year-old boy and his friend had killed his brother and parents, and when police arrived to arrest them, they were kicking the corpses and listening to Silverchair, Israel's son which includes the lyrics, hate is what I feel for you, and I want you to know that I want you dead. Thankfully, the prosecutors argued that the teens listening to this song proved nothing other than it being a song that they had listened to. It can't force or influence someone to perform such acts, nor can it be held responsible. I think every time something like this occurs and a band or musician is targeted with blame, there's always that worry that something will come of it, because if it does, it will set a precedent that would change music or media as we know it. In late 96, ARIA, the Australian Recording Industry Association, and AMRA, the Association of Music Retailers Australia, released a code of practice that would make requirements around what was acceptable for sale and what warning labels needed to be included to do so. That labelling system was what then resulted in Cannibal Corpse albums being banned for sale in Australia for 10 years. And in 2006, once they were finally legal again, they came with a warning for over 18 only. In 2003, we had another custom seizure when albums by Tasmanian grindcore band Intense Hammer Rage were recorded and sent across from the US. They were found in customs and deemed to violate laws because of the subject matter of the album's artwork and lyrics. The band members were fined as a result. Look, I'm not going to lie, this one's pretty fucking gross. And not in the tongue-in-cheek way that so much death metal is. There's just way too many lyrics on this album about fucking kids. To the point that if I knew someone who was into these guys and tried to wave it off and tell me it's just a joke, I'd probably question whether I wanted those people anywhere near me ever again. It's that fucking gross. Um, so part of me thinks, good, I'm glad they got seized. But that just brings us back around to the question of where do we draw the line? Who gets to choose what's acceptable or not and impose those sorts of restrictions? I suppose if it has a parental advisory label, you'll have to ask your mother. That was Danzig with Mother. If we look across the world, things are different everywhere. Censorship might be more prevalent in some countries than others, but also what and how they censor can change. 
In Iran, a religion-guided government sees Western culture as blasphemous and satanic. The Ministry of Culture has to approve all music, including all lyrics and instrumental sections. So classical Persian music and some forms of pop music tend to flourish, but rock and heavy metal, hip-hop and punk, they all remain underground. If a musician wants to pursue their passions in Iran, they're often risking imprisonment or they need to make a decision to move to another country. In the Global Metal docos, Sam Dunn is interviewing people at a show in Dubai and Tom Araya mentions how they received a photo of someone standing next to a wall in Iran, spray painted with Slayer, and when they pan out to the full photo, it turns out to be one of the fans that Sam has been interviewing. I love Tom Araya and in this interview he just grins that typical Tom grin and says, wow, Slayer in Iran, it just screams death. Slayer of course aren't shy of these issues, having had their album Christ Illusion recalled and banned in India in 2006 after a wave of protests stating that it was insulting to Christianity. Saudi Arabia is similar to Iran in that they have a religious-based government and there are a lot of things preventing metal music from being played. In 2009, there was a public metal show that got way too rowdy and so the organizers ended up being arrested. After that, metal just went deep underground and from what I could find, it wasn't until about 2019 that there was another public show. North Korea, I mean, do I even have to mention it? Anything to do with Western culture is banned because it could lead to dissenting opinions. So possession of certain items are punishable via imprisonment and they would probably be the prime example of how extreme censorship can go and how it can be used to disempower people and keep them under control. Places like China tend to ban anything that criticizes government, as well as things that talk about luxury or the paranormal, but they keep their laws loose enough that they can kind of twist them whenever they want. They, like other countries such as Germany, require government submissions and review of song titles and lyrics before public performances, where they can approve or reject set lists and lyrics. This means, for example, that in China, Metallica can play a show, but they're banned from playing Master of Puppets. Not because of drug references, but because of the connotations it has with their government and controlling people. In their 2013 show, Kirk Hammett actually found a very cheeky way around this by sneaking some riffs from Master of Puppets and a couple of other band songs into guitar solos. I think that's fantastic. In 2009, Ramstein's song Pussy was banned from being publicly displayed in Germany and in Russia for fear of promoting unprotected sex. And in 2013, Lamb of God were banned from performing in Malaysia because their live album, Philadelphia, they mentioned the Quran. Russia tends to have a lot of issues with artists. In 2014, after already having a hard time getting shows moving, Behemoth played four out of the 13 shows that were booked before being detained and deported. They were then banned from entering Russia for five years because of their satanic ties. Also in Russia, Sabaton were banned from performing at the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad following accusations of being Nazi sympathizers and rumors being spread that they were going to desecrate the Russian flag on stage. There was talk of banning the band from the country completely, but this didn't end up happening. Come on guys, it's Sabaton. That was Sabaton with Defense of Moscow. Something I find really interesting is censorship or recommended censorship in the context of sensitive events. For example, after the 9-11 Twin Towers collapse, Clear Channel put out a memo with recommendations for around 165 items that radio and TV stations should avoid playing. 
This included anything relating to death, explosions, the month of September, New York, fire or falling, as well as a number of celebratory songs. This list included tracks like ACDC Shot Down in Flames, TNT and Safe in New York City, Blue Oyster Cult Burning For You, Drowning Pool Bodies, Corn Falling Away From Me, Mudvayne Death Blooms, and Ozzy Osbourne Suicide Solution. On the day of 9-11, Dream Theater had released their album Live Scenes from New York, which showed a flaming apple with the New York skyline, including the Twin Towers burning. This was immediately recalled and reissued with a new album cover. This just sparks thought around sensitivities and where the line is between being respectful and being patronizing and overprotective. We see this a lot on social media now, which is full of censorship issues. It's not so much that people are soft, as some people would like you to believe, but the systems are designed to prevent the use of certain words or phrases, but they don't have a way of determining context and nuance something which can be tricky enough for people trying to interpret things that have been shared online. So people have to be quite careful about what and how they express things, and we're starting to see a branch of language that's designed to bypass bots and reporting systems. It sounds and looks fucking stupid, and if you didn't know why people do it, you'd think they've all gone mad. But to avoid being silenced or removed, people will self-censor. They'll say things like unalived instead of dead, dying, killed, murdered, or even committed suicide, because God forbid you have a conversation about those things. And then we find that passive-aggressive remarks might be more common, because they're not going to get picked up as easily as just outright calling someone names. There's also the concept of cancel culture and the idea that this is another form of censorship. Dee Snyder has spoken about this somewhat recently, saying that it impacts the way he writes and what metaphors he uses. This was before people claimed he was cancelled during Pride Month, which of course he wasn't. He was removed from performing at a Pride Parade after comments he made that, although weren't intentionally transphobic, they were misguided and they just don't align with the support that's needed for the T in our LGBT at those parades. That's a reasonable response to the situation and was probably in his best interests as well. The organisers there actually took the time to sit down with him, talk him through the issues, so they were really good about it. There was no cancellation. Anyway, so cancel culture is defined as attitudes within a community which call for or bring about the withdrawal of support from a public figure, usually in response to an accusation of a socially unacceptable action or comment. It originated as another term for boycotting, and it, like so many other words and phrases, was co-opted and weaponized by conservatives and politically right-wing folks against those on the left, tending to be used if it's in relation to something that they disagree with politically. For example, it was called a boycott when conservatives wanted to stop buying Bud Light because they ran ads that included a trans person. But it's cancel culture when a company doesn't want to work with a person who has been outwardly transphobic, and I'm not necessarily referencing D here, just to clarify. I'll be honest, I really wanted to explore this further in this episode, but I haven't been able to find the words to express exactly what I was wanting to say. So I will summarise, but this doesn't quite capture all my thoughts on the issue. I guess there are always going to be people who sit to the extreme on all sides, and that's where the major issues and potential censorship comes into play. It goes right back around to what we saw with the PMRC. You know, things aren't always black and white, right or wrong, and especially in music, we want to be able to explore all sorts of topics in a creative way, without fear of being attacked, but just as there needs to be freedom to write the music that you want, 
people have a right to their opinions and sharing of these. So you kind of need to stick to your guns, but also be prepared for potential backlash. I think the balance of this is quite complex, but there's definitely a big difference between consumers and general public saying their piece or putting their money where their mouth is versus people with political power imposing rules and restrictions that take away choice. And I would say that's where the difference lies and why cancel culture isn't necessarily censorship. I do think there's more to dig into on this one day, but for now, you can hear it in the words of Ralph Sheepers. That was Primal Fear with Cancel Culture off their new album, Code Red. In metal news, Behemoth had been raising money for UNICEF Poland, but their donations were rejected because of their links to Satanism, just like them being banned in Russia. This ended up being given to a children's hospital instead, who were very happy to take that dirty satanic money. Powerwolf took their artistic performances to a new level with the use of augmented reality to bring a monstrous giant wolf forth above the stage at their Summer Breeze Festival, which is pretty damn cool use of technology. You can see this on YouTube with Art Concert, that's A-R-T-E, Concert, for Summer Breeze 2023. In gaming, Megadeth collaborated with Wargaming for a musical in-game event called Metal Fest, which brought together World of Tanks and World of Warships, with voices from Dave, James, Dirk and Kiko, as well as a bunch of Megadeth-themed gear and missions. Richard Patrick of Filter has been doing interviews about the inspiration of his new album, and quite on topic for today, with one interview in particular done with Blabbermouth, where he opened up about scary messages he's received from people, name-dropping his friends and family, just showing how much people can find out and how much they know about you when you're famous, even though you know nothing about them. He spoke about how in 2019, a concert in El Paso, Texas was cancelled because he posted some anti-Donald Trump videos on Facebook. The event organisers received a bunch of threatening phone calls from Trump supporters, and the venue were forced to pull them from the bill. He likes to be able to express himself openly, including politically, but there are risks involved with this, so this played a part in the inspiration for the new album. I guess this is also on topic for today, but there were headlines going around about Tobias Sammet being upset about Alice Cooper's cancellation, as well as headlines about Alice getting cancelled. Firstly, Alice did not get cancelled. A makeup company took him off their roster because he wasn't going to be a good fit with the comments he made regarding trans folks. No one has cancelled Alice. In fact, most people were quite understanding, and even where they disagree with his comments, they mostly waved it off as Alice being of that generation and being influenced by right-wing media rather than intending anything hateful. But anyway, I also participated in this thread on Tobias's page. He tends to ask a lot of questions in his posts to get people to interact, but he does this in a way that it does read as a genuine interest in what people's thoughts are and an openness to learning, which is further supported when you look at how much he interacts with people in the threads. Some of the people in the comments though, yuck. But news, and I say that lightly, news outlets love to blow these things up because it gets people clicking. John Schaefer of Iced Earth has had a sentencing date confirmed for February 2024, following his involvement in the US Capitol riots in 2021, where he targeted police with bear spray and was part of the right-wing extremist group Oath Keepers. Well, I guess he didn't take that oath too seriously because he's taken a plea deal to cooperate with government and provide testimony against other offenders in return for a reduced sentence, which is looking at around three and a half to four years in prison with talk of witness protection. 
Gorgoroth guitarist Infernus was attacked after they performed at Beyond the Gates Festival, ending up in hospital and requiring complex surgeries. Recovery so far has been going well, though. In August, we did unfortunately lose a few amongst our ranks. We lost Claudio Lopez, bassist of Dorsal Atlantica, who died of a heart attack. Brad Thompson, former guitarist of the Tony Danza Tap Dance Extravaganza, and Bernie Marsden, former guitarist of Whitesnake. What have I been up to? What gave serotonin some serotonin throughout August? Well, I took a nice trip to Queensland, staying in Surfers Paradise, ate lots of delicious food, visited the Wax Museum and Ripley's Believe It or Not, saw the Capybaras at Corumban, and went to Dracula's for dinner and a show that was interrupted when a fire broke out. That was a trip. The music in the venue stayed on so you couldn't even hear the alarms or announcements and once people knew what was going on, they were more concerned with getting their drinks than getting out. I'll give it to the staff though. They were putting on improv shows in the car park to keep people entertained. So if you're gonna get stuck in an emergency evacuation, that's not a bad place to be. I went and saw Melbourne Thrashers Elm Street at Cherry Bar who were fucking fantastic. Uh, supported by Riot After Midnight, who did a really fun cover of Danger Zone, and True Believer, who were also fantastic. And Metalocalypse Army of the Doomstar movie was released, along with the newest Death album. Ah, oh, this was so good. I made a bit of a night of it and went down to the Taddy Shack in Hastings, where my mate Lee hosted friends and family, and we threw it all up on a projector, sat back in beanbags, and watched the show. We may not have had a cinema release, but this was a good alternative. The new album, Death Album 4, is also absolutely killer. So you know we're going to listen to a track, right? That was Death Clock with Bloodbath. Now let's talk recent metal releases. As always, most bands that I mention here will be included, amongst others, in the Sin and Steel new releases playlists, which you can find through the link tree in the podcast description or on social media bios. Otherwise, you can jump on and find their tracks, usually on Bandcamp. In Death Metal, we saw Massacre release the single They Never Die, Bezamora with Beyond Atrocity, and Cannibal Corpse with Summoned for Sacrifice. Invocation released the album Unholy Deification, Cataclysm released Goliath, Dying Fetus came out with Make Them Beg for Death, and Dead and Dripping released Blackened Cerebral Rifts. What a fucking name. We also saw albums from Cemetery Dwell, Cystic, Dripping Decay, Stargazer, Horrendous, Incantation, Celestial Sanctuary, and Reverence to Paroxysm. And this next one, oh... That was Cryptopsy with Flayed the Swine, off their new album As Gamora Burns. Technically this album came out this month, it was a September release, and I've been absolutely smashing it since, but they did release that single last month. This album though is fucking fantastic. It's a brutal assault on your ears in the most beautiful way. If you need something to drown out the general noise of life, throw this on and you'll soon be in bliss. In Gothic Metal, we saw the release of single Breathing Souls by Lacrimus Profunda. And on the industrial side of things, Filter released The Algorithm, the album we were talking about just before. While Doom gave us Distortions by Godfrey and the delectable The Banishing by Bottomless. That was another one that popped up on the new wave of traditional heavy metal YouTube page, which is a great one to follow for new tunes. 
I was immediately looking up Bottomless on Spotify and on the Metal Archives trying to find out more. Just be careful googling that when your safe search is off. In Black Metal we saw the album Memento Mori by Marduk, Our Dark Lord and Saviour by Anarazel, and Shores of Nastrond by Runespell, as well as releases from Urfost, Invultation, Nixel, and Bloody Vengeance. Another one that's sitting really high in my release rankings this year so far is the neoclassical thrash death masterpiece, yes, masterpiece, Necrophony by Ex Mortis. That was Ex Mortis with Oathbreaker. As I said, this one's sitting up there. The death thrash balance with the classical influences is just such a great combo. Also in thrash, Novosa released the single Jailbreak, Crypta released the album Shades of Sorrow, Cruel Force put out the album Dawn of the Axe, and crossing into the metalcore space, Ringworm released Seeing Through Fire. From Sydney, Australia, Reva released the single Future Kings, Melbourne group Frankenbock put out the single Fight Back, and another Melbourne group I mentioned earlier, Elm Street, released the single Take the Night. That was Elm Street with Take the Night. In traditional heavy metal, Dokken released the single Fugitive. We saw Ronnie Atkins come out with If You Can Dream It, You Can Do It. And Alice Cooper dropped the album Road. Reggae metalhead Skindred released the album Smile and have announced a headlining show at Wembley Arena next year. A doco about these guys has actually just gone up on Thunderflix too, so go and check that out. In power metal, Angra released the single Ride Into The Storm. Iron Saviour released the EP Curse of the Machinery, and Induction released an EP The Power of Power. Owlbear, whose name is great by the way, for those who don't know, I run Dungeons and Dragons games for high school students each week as one of their elective subjects, and I just introduced them to the Owlbear in a recent practice game. I got some very wide eyes when I was describing this creature to them. It was great. Anyway, great name for a power metal band. This month, they released the album Chaos to the Realm. That was Owlbear with Fiend of Fire. So, I want to know, what do you think about censorship? Do you think it has a place in our society, needs to be stopped outright, or do you sit somewhere in between? Have you ever had to risk it for a biscuit? Do something sneaky to get a hold of some banned material? Reach out and let me know through Facebook, Instagram, or you can email me at sinandsteel at outlook.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to and share the podcast and make sure to follow Sin and Steel on social media. Keep an eye out because we're going to have some wonderful guests coming up over the next couple of months. And in the meantime, listen to the previous episodes or check out my link tree to access playlists, including songs from the episodes and to be directed to the Sin and Steel Redbubble store for merchandise featuring artwork designed by me. Thanks for listening in to episode 12 of Sin and Steel, Parental Guidance. I'm your host, Sarah Tonin, and sinners, until next time, stay metal. <laughs>